You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. five men went to Ecuador to share the gospel with the indigenous population. Four years into their work, they encountered a hostile tribe and were murdered. Now, this is a famous incident, but it's far from unique. Many Christians have suffered for proclaiming their faith all over the world down through the ages, from the apostles in the first century to those executed by ISIS in the 21st century. Spreading the gospel has always been dangerous business. So why do it? Why take the risk? Because Jesus, the King of Kings, commands his people to make him known throughout this world. And that's what we're going to see this morning as we encounter the famous command of the risen Jesus known as the Great Commission in the conclusion to our series in the gospel according to Matthew. As we come today to Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. And today I have four points. We're going to see this morning, first, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second, the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. Third, the command of our Lord Jesus Christ. And fourth, the comfort of our Lord Jesus Christ. We begin with our first point, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Over the last several sermons, we've seen that Jesus died for our sins and he rose triumphantly from the dead. And last week, we saw the events at Jesus' empty tomb and we saw his first resurrection or post resurrection appearance to the women. But now Matthew moves ahead several days or even weeks. uh, And while the other gospels record many of Jesus' other post resurrection appearances that happened during this time in and around Jerusalem, Matthew does not record those. Instead, he records just one more appearance, a meeting that takes place between the risen Jesus and his 11 principal disciples, which happened not around Jerusalem, but rather in the northern region of Galilee. And that's what we see now in Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, last week we saw that the women who were the first to see the risen Jesus were instructed by an angel and then by Jesus himself to tell the 11 disciples, Jesus is risen, go meet him in Galilee. And now they're here. Now, John's gospel tells us that by this point, the 11 have all seen the risen Jesus at least once already. But although this is not their first experience with the risen Jesus, this is still an important encounter. Because the last time that we saw the 11 was on the night that Jesus was arrested. That night Jesus had said to them, you're all going to desert me. And they arrogantly disputed with Jesus and said, no, never. And yet hours later, when Jesus was arrested, Matthew 26 says, then all the disciples left him and fled. The disciples catastrophically failed Jesus by abandoning him at a critical moment. Yet despite their sin, Jesus does not reject them. Instead, 
He regathers them after their failure, just like he said he would back in chapter 26. And now he has regathered them back in the place where his ministry began, back where he first called them. And now he restores the disciples and he graciously recommissions them to the work of ministry. This is a new beginning for the eleven. And as the eleven see Jesus on this occasion, they worship him. And we said last week, that is the right response to the risen Jesus. Worship. Because Jesus' resurrection proves that he is God who became man. That he alone can bring us to the Father. And that his death has truly freed believers from the power and penalty of sin. So Jesus deserves our worship. And yet we read here that some doubted. Ancient people were not more gullible than modern people. Just as if we saw someone that we knew had died walking around alive again, we would be astonished and confused. They also were astonished and confused when they saw the risen Jesus. And yet, although some of them doubted, Jesus didn't reject the doubters either. No, Jesus had mercy on those who doubted. And he showed himself to them and convinced them of the reality of his resurrection, as Luke says, by many convincing proofs. And so here we see the grace of Jesus. Jesus patiently helps his people who struggle with doubt, and Jesus forgives and restores his people who fail, even those who fail disastrously, as the disciples do. Because those who truly belong to Jesus are forever his. 2 Timothy 2 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we see that here as Jesus forgives and restores the disciples. He is the God of the second chance and the third and the fourth. And friends, we can see that in our own lives after we fail too. Friends, don't misunderstand me. Our sins are real. They are terrible. But James 2.13 says, Mercy triumphs over judgment. And that mercy is possible because as chapter 26 says, Jesus' blood was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So there is forgiving and restoring grace in Jesus. We come now to our second point, the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now Jesus is truly God and truly man. And as God, all authority has always rested entirely in his hands. And previously in this book, we have seen Jesus' great authority. Chapter 7, we saw his unparalleled teaching authority. And in his miracles, we saw his authority over the natural realm and the supernatural realm. We've seen his authority to forgive sin. His authority over the Sabbath and the temple and everything in Judaism. Jesus had great authority. In fact, Jesus says in chapter 11, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. It's a law of authority. But now, Jesus comes and says, All authority has been given to me. Why does he say that now? Was that not already the case? Has something changed in his resurrection? Well, to understand Jesus' words here, I think we should consider how the rest of the New Testament talks about Jesus' resurrection. In Acts 2, as Peter preaches at Pentecost, he quotes Psalm 110. 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This speaks of the Messiah as one who sits at the Father's side, wielding all the power of God. And Peter says that was fulfilled in Jesus' resurrection, Acts 2.32. He says, this Jesus God has raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And he has been therefore exalted to the right hand of God. Now, of course, as God the Son, Jesus already had all divine power. But God the Son has taken on true humanity, and that's what's different now. Now a man sits beside the Father's throne as God's equal, wielding the Father's power. Jesus, not in his deity alone, but in his humanity, is exalted in this way. And that began at Jesus' resurrection. Paul makes the same point, Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. He says, being found in human form... Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Paul says that as a result of his death on the cross, Jesus has been exalted over everything in creation. Now, of course, in his deity, he already was. But now in his humanity, a man stands in, in dominion over all creation, all authority is his in heaven and on earth. And that means that Jesus has total cosmic authority over all things that have been created. There is nothing in all creation, visible or invisible, that is not subject to his rule. And having received this exaltation, now the prophecy of Daniel 7 begins to stand fulfilled. Now, one like a son of man was presented before the Ancient of Days. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This has begun to be actualized. The king has come into his kingdom, his rule in principle. All that remains is for the Father to give the signal and Jesus will return to earth and claim what is his. And so what Jesus said at his illegal trial to the Sanhedrin is true. From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is beside his Father, reigning over this universe, and one day, friends, he will come to this world and conquer it and set all things right. Now today, if you know Jesus, this is great news. The one who loved you so much he died for you is ruling over creation, over history, and over your life. And he sympathizes with us. He understands what it is to be a human. He loves us, and so we can trust him with our lives, friends. Jesus said in Matthew 10, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Fear not, therefore, you are of much more value than sparrows. Many sparrows, he says. Jesus, who said that, is today reigning over all things. He is Lord over all that has and will happen to us. And so whatever happens, we can trust. He is in control. Nothing happens outside of his will. And Romans 8 promises that for those who love God, all things work together for good. He will work out all things for his people's ultimate good, which is to say he will conform us to his image. So all authority belongs to Jesus. And now, Jesus as Lord speaks to his people and issues us a command. And this is our third point now. 
the command of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here Jesus gives the disciples their marching orders as they begin ministry anew with the Great Commission. If you've been around churches for a while, at this point there will be a temptation to let your eyes glaze over and say, yeah, I've heard this before, sounds like a good time for a nap. Don't do that for two reasons. First, this is the parting command of Jesus in this book. If we belong to him, we need to be attentive when our master speaks, and especially here, because last words are so important. And these words are especially so because they are historically significant, and they form a vital command that demands our attention, a command which we should use to examine ourselves, to see if we're obeying Jesus, which we should listen to to understand what he wants from our lives. But second, I think many people think they understand the Great Commission, and yet the sort of popular understanding of this text really misses about two-thirds of what Jesus actually says here. So I want us to listen carefully to this because we may not know this material as well as we think we do. So with that in mind, let's look now at Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. And structurally, the first part of verse 19 contains Jesus' command, and then the rest of 19 and the first half of 20 explain the hows and the whys of that command. But let's start with the command itself. Matthew 28, 19. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. I want you to see four things here. First, notice the word therefore. This connects Jesus' command to the statement he just made about his authority. Jesus has all cosmic authority, and on that basis, now he requires this of his people. So the Great Commission is not optional. This is not a suggestion. No, we're going to see later, this is actually a command that binds all of Jesus' followers throughout all ages. This is a command that Jesus, in all his authority, requires believers to obey. Second, the command here is to make disciples. That's the main verb in the clause. Now, that might surprise us, because we might think that if Jesus is going to say, hey, I've got all this authority over the universe, and I'm now going to leverage that to give you a command, he would say something like this, overthrow Rome and establish a Christian empire, or go around and, and cast out demons and, and bring down Satan's regime. But friends, that is not how Jesus' kingdom is established. No, it grows one disciple at a time, at least until he comes at the end. But what's interesting is that up to this point in, in Matthew's gospel, it is Jesus himself who has been making disciples. He's been walking on the earth, and he's been saying to people, follow me. But now things will be different. Now his disciples will do that. And as Jesus turns this responsibility over to the 11, it's really at this point that we can say the 11 have become Jesus' apostles. The term apostle means sent one, and Jesus now sends his apostles to make disciples. But the disciple making the apostles engage in is going to be different than the disciple making that Jesus did. Because when Jesus made disciples, he was the master. And so his disciples listened to his teaching and watched his example. But when Jesus' apostles make disciples, they are not the master. And yet their converts will still listen to their teaching and watch their lives. And yet, despite that, in the end, the apostles remain simply disciples of Jesus. They have not now become spiritual gurus in their own right. No, their function is simply to transmit Jesus' teaching faithfully and to live in a way that reflects Jesus' own example. So that the disciples they, they make 
wind up ultimately being supremely loyal to Jesus alone. Now, friends, this is the pattern we are called to. We call others to follow us, but by so doing, we really want them to ultimately be following Jesus. We see a great example of this in 1 Corinthians 11.1. As Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Yes, Paul wants the Corinthians to listen to him and follow him, but only because he's following Jesus and because he wants the Corinthians to ultimately be Jesus' disciples, not just his. This is a useful standard that you should use in evaluating your religious teachers. Are the people that you're listening to pointing you to Jesus and his word or to themselves? Are they giving you the word of Christ or their own ideas? Are they calling you to ultimately be loyal to Jesus or to themselves? Friends, the Great Commission calls Jesus' disciples to ultimately make more disciples of Jesus. This leads to our third observation about verse 19. The Great Commission is the first command of the new era governed by the new covenant. I saw a few weeks ago that as Jesus died, the temple curtain was torn in two, which signified, among other things, that the old covenant was fulfilled. The old order has concluded. We're in a new era now. And as this new era begins, we find this command. And what's interesting is that this command is profoundly similar to the first command that God gave in several previous eras of world history. And yet it's also profoundly different. Let me show you what I mean. At the dawn of creation, God told Adam and Eve, Genesis 1.28, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. In the beginning, there was a command to multiply, calling for physical reproduction. In the same way, after the flood, as Noah stepped off the ark into the new world, God told him and his sons, Genesis 9.1, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Again, it's a command to multiply, calling for physical reproduction. In the same way, in Genesis 35.10, God says to Jacob, No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. Again, a command to multiply, calling for physical reproduction. Friends, this is not accidental. The beginning of creation, the beginning of the post-flood world, and the beginning of the nation of Israel all commence immediately with a command to multiply. And now the beginning of the new era does too. Except... The multiplication Jesus commands here of us is not physical reproduction. It's spiritual reproduction. Friends, this is a multiplicative command every believer can carry out. If you're married or if you're single, if you're fertile or if you're infertile, if you're before your childbearing years or after your childbearing years, we are all commanded to multiply by being disciples of Jesus who make more disciples of Jesus. But where are we to find these disciples? That's the fourth thing we see in verse 19, as Jesus commands his 11 to go. Jesus told them this once before, back in chapter 10, when he sent them on their missionary journey. And he said this, Matthew 10, verse 5. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. At that point in Jesus' ministry, the disciples' mission field was limited to Galilee and Jews. 
But now things have changed. Now Jesus commands, go make disciples of all nations. In this era, God is not only going to work salvifically through one nation. No, the promise of Isaiah 49 has now come to pass in the Messiah. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That happened. The Father sent Jesus into the world as a light for all nations. And now Jesus sends his disciples to go to those nations to win disciples from every people group. And this is a conclusion to a major theme in Matthew's gospel, which is Gentile inclusion among the people of God. It goes back to the very beginning of the book, chapter 1, as we see four Gentile women in the genealogy of Jesus. You see in chapter 8, as Jesus marvels at the faith of a Gentile centurion, saying, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the, of the, of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. Many Jews will be eternally condemned because they won't believe in Jesus, and many Gentiles will be saved because they will. And throughout this book, it's Jesus who has taken the gospel into various Gentile regions and performed miracles and drew Gentile people to himself. Jesus is the first Christian missionary, and now he has the disciples build upon his foundation and call people from every background to faith. And in this, the opening words of the book are fulfilled. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I've seen many times in this book, Jesus is the long-promised son of David, the messianic king. But now we see Jesus is the descendant, the long-promised descendant of Abraham. Because God said to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And now we see how that comes to fruition. Because in Jesus, God's salvation is offered throughout the whole world to Jew and Gentile alike. In Jesus, God builds a people for his own possession, made up of folks called from every population on earth who will inherit the new creation and who will dwell in the bliss of Jesus' presence forever. But how does this take place? Jesus' disciples must go. They must take the truth about him to places they've never, uh, that, that the name of Jesus has never been proclaimed before. And there, they must make more disciples. Now, how this actually played out in the lives of the 11 is interesting. Acts 8 tells us in the early days of the church, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem arose, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Everybody was scattered except the apostles. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem in the early days. And that was good. They were the leaders of the most visible central Christian church at the time. But in Acts 8, who is it that went abroad? Those whom the apostles disciple, the second generation of believers, were scattered. And that's one way the Great Commission is fulfilled. We may not go ourselves. We may be called to stay here for a time or even for the rest of our lives. But that doesn't mean we are exempt from disciple-making. No, we make disciples where we are, and some of them may go abroad. And those of us who remain must generously support those who go. 3 John tells us the standard that we must support missionaries is in a manner worthy of God. That's a very high standard, friends, isn't it? We must do our very best to generously support those who proclaim Jesus in distant lands. And that's one way the Great Commission works. And yet later, eventually, the apostles themselves did go. Not just to nearby Samaria and Judea. They went all over the known world, as far as Russia, India, and Africa, and that's another way the Great Commission is obeyed. 
by us actually picking up and going someplace distant to proclaim the name of Jesus, to take the truth about him to the people there. And friends, that may be the future for some of us here, to spend portions of our lives or maybe the rest of our lives in distant corners of the globe proclaiming Jesus, living out the Great Commission. Friends, it's a beautiful thing that honors Christ. It's hard to find a more worthwhile way to live than that. And so to wrap up the first part of verse 19, we see here that in the new era in which we live, there's a multiplicative command. We are to spiritually reproduce by making more disciples of Jesus, by having people follow us as we follow Jesus. And we're to do this in every part of the world because Jesus has used his limitless authority to command us to do so. Now let's apply this. Have you ever considered the possibility that Jesus wants you to go someplace far away to proclaim him in some land that is not saturated with the gospel? Now, it's easy for us as affluent Americans to sit here and say, oh, somebody else is going to go. But have you ever considered the possibility that it might actually be you? At whatever age you are, at whatever stage in life you are, it could be God's will for you to go. Maybe for a brief time, maybe for a lifetime. There are lots of reasons we can say it should be somebody else. But I want you to consider and pray about the idea that maybe it should be you. And if you feel drawn to that idea, don't just dismiss it out of hand. Come talk with the elders about it. Second, if you are reasonably sure that right now God has you here for this season of life, what are you doing to advance the cause of Christ abroad? Can you legitimately say that you are supporting workers abroad in a manner worthy of God? Can our church, I know we have a big budget and it's increased over the last few years, but friends, I think the number one area where our church's budget needs modification is we need to increasingly support foreign missions. And I would imagine that the number one area for many of us in our own budgets is where we can make a modification is that we should be increasingly supporting foreign missions. This is an essential aspect of this command that Jesus has given us. But third, if you are reasonably sure that, that God has you here right now for this season, what are you doing to make disciples here? You don't have to go abroad to make disciples, friends. We have a ready-made mission field all around us. Are you married? First Peter 3 says marriage is your mission field. Uh, is your spouse a believer? Or uh, you say, well, no, or I'm not sure. That's, that's where you've got to start. Do you have kids? This is what Ephesians 6 means when it says, nurture them in the admonition of the Lord. Your kids are your mission field. And then beyond that, God has sovereignly seen to it that you are where you are with the extended family and friends and coworkers and neighbors that you have. They are your mission field. So friends, no matter who you are, there are people around you that need to be discipled. Are you making any efforts for those around you? And if not, why not? We're going to see in just a minute, the Great Commission is not only for the original 11 apostles. Friends, it's not just for church elders or deacons. It is for every believer that we should make disciples. Are you doing it? Or are you being disobedient? Now, maybe you hear this and say, well, I don't know what it means to make a disciple. Or even, I don't know what it means to be a disciple. Okay. Thankfully, in the rest of verse 19, the beginning of verse 20, Jesus gives us three statements that tell us exactly what being a disciple and making disciples means. And we see the first of these now in verse 19. Jesus says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus commands baptism. 
Now, Matthew hasn't said anything about Christian baptism in this book. So how should we understand this? Well, when you look at the book of Acts, we know how the apostles interpreted it. They baptized those who heard the gospel and responded with faith. Those who repentantly entrusted themselves to Jesus received the outward, publicly visible sign of baptism as soon as practicable. And so since baptism is something for new converts, what Jesus really is commanding here is evangelizing the lost. That we need to proclaim the gospel, the good news about Jesus, deity, death, and resurrection to those who, already, or those who do not already believe. And friends, as we evangelize, many who are lost will believe, and we're then to baptize them. But making disciples begins with evangelism. Now notice I said begins with evangelism. Sometimes people think that's all the Great Commission's about. That's not right. We're going to see that in a minute. But if we don't evangelize, we won't make new converts to baptize, we won't be making disciples, and we will be disobeying Jesus. So we must evangelize the lost. But who are the lost people we should evangelize? Well, Jesus says here, all nations. So on one level, the right answer is everybody without distinction. But I think practically, we each should prioritize those who are in our own personal mission fields of family and friends and acquaintances who we either know are not believers because they're atheists or they're in some other religion, or who profess Christ but give us a good reason to question the validity of their profession. Maybe because they're part of a church that's beliefs are contrary to the biblical gospel. Or because even though they claim faith, they're living a life the Bible says does not characterize faith. Titus 1 talks about those who profess to know God but deny him by their works. 1 Corinthians 6 says, Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But... You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Believing friends, we will all sin. But Paul here is telling us salvation generates life change. Real believers shouldn't live like unbelievers. Persistent, unrepentant sin gives good evidence we don't really belong to Jesus. And if that's how we live while we claim Jesus, we're showing our profession of faith is false. And if there's somebody who says they're a believer, who's living like an unbeliever, that person probably doesn't know Jesus, and we need to evangelize them. Say, but okay, how do we evangelize? Well, good news, friends. We have a practical evangelism training Sunday school class happening in the church before the main service each week uh, through the end of May. But beyond that, let me, let me say two things here. First, and most importantly, to evangelize, we need to learn how to communicate the truths of the gospel. We need to have, be able to explain the bad news. We each and all are guilty of sin. We stand under God's judgment. And we've got to learn how to explain the good news. Jesus is God and man who came on a rescue mission to save us from the penalty and power of sin. And second, to effectively evangelize, we usually need to build intentional relationships with those that we want to reach so that they know we care about them in a real way. And we're not just saying, oh, I've got, got another convert this week, right? Now, why do I say that communicating the news of the gospel is primary and building relationships is secondary. Because the gospel is news with content. If we don't tell the news, we have not evangelized. 
And friends, we have to tell the news verbally. Nobody's going to learn who Jesus is, why he's come, and how we must respond to him if we never say the words out loud. They're not going to figure it out just by watching us be nice or doing some good works. The gospel is news. It has content that must be verbally transmitted. And if we don't do that, we're not evangelizing, period. But while the essence of evangelism is communicating the content of the gospel, if we don't build intentional relationships with lost people, our efforts are not likely to succeed. Of course, I'm talking here from like a human perspective, right? I'm not talking about so the sovereignty of God. And I don't want you to hear me say that it's impossible that we might give the gospel to someone on the street that we don't know and that they'll be converted. People are converted through street evangelism still all the time. But I think friendship evangelism builds credibility with lost people because it gives them a context to learn about the faith and ask questions. It invites them to look at your life and they can see how you live differently than unbelievers. So we evangelize by faithfully speaking the gospel and we evangelize effectively by intentionally building relationships with lost people to build credibility with them. And friends, as we do these things, God will save some of the people we evangelize. And those who are saved must then be baptized, Jesus says. And we are to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is an important uh, verse that points to the doctrine of the Trinity. As Jesus says here, there is one name, the name is singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How can these three persons share one name? Because the Trinity is correct, friends, that that doctrine is true. There is only one living God who eternally exists as three persons simultaneously, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus here instructs us to baptize converts in this Trinitarian formula so that there is a public visual thing that write or, or act that, that demonstrates and associates this convert with their new relationship with the triune God, which they have entered into by repentant faith. Okay, so that's why Jesus commands us to practice baptism, and that's why we must speak the name of the Trinity over those who we baptize. And so the first way we make disciples then, friends, is through evangelism that ultimately leads to conversion and baptism. All right, let me ask some questions here. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Have you repentantly entrusted yourself to Jesus' deity, death, and resurrection? If not, you are dead in your sins and heading for an eternity under God's wrath. Friend, have you repentantly believed in Jesus today? If so, have you been baptized? Many denominations baptize babies, but in the Bible, the only people who are baptized are believers. Have you been baptized as a believer? If you're a believer, you need to be. And if that's you, you need to come talk to the elders if you haven't been baptized yet. If you are a disciple of Jesus, are you making more disciples? Now, friends, I want you to know this is as important as being baptized. If we hold others to saying, you need to be baptized, we need to be honest enough to hold ourselves to the idea that we need to be making disciples. Is there anybody that you are evangelizing? Now, a minute ago, I talked about we need to have good friendships and relationships with lost people, and that's important. But here I want to specifically ask, not are you hanging out with lost people as friends, but have you actually spoken the good news about Jesus to some lost person lately? Whether it's your spouse or your kids or anybody else. Jesus, with all the authority in the universe, tells us that we must if we belong to him. That's his command. But while evangelism is part of the Great Commission, it's not all of it. We see that as we come now to Jesus' second explanation of disciple-making at the beginning of verse 20. Jesus says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
The Great Commission doesn't just command evangelism. I've known churches that thought it did. So they'd speak the gospel in public, and they'd say, pray the sinner's prayer with me, and if you prayed it, put your hand up at the end, and then they'd go back to the church and say, we saw seven people come to know the Lord this week. And everybody would say, oh, amen, amen. And yet nobody there had any idea who those seven people were or what happened to them later. Friends, that is not obedience to the Great Commission. Yes, we are to evangelize that the lost may be saved, but then we are to teach so that the saved may learn. But what are we to teach? Well, not our own ideas. And not pop psychology that makes us feel culturally relevant. No, friends, Jesus tells us what we're to teach, which is his own teaching. And in this book, we have seen Jesus teach much. In this book, he has preached five major sermons. And I'm not going to reiterate all of them to you now. But I want to remind you of just a few highlights of Jesus' teaching from this book. Number one, what characterized saved people is their total dependence on Jesus. Two, God doesn't just care about our actions. He cares about our thought lives and our motives. Three, God isn't interested in us putting on a show of righteousness to impress other people. He wants us instead to live obedient lives of righteousness, desiring to please him. Four, we don't have to be anxious about anything because God is a good father who gives good gifts to his children. Five, there are ultimately only two ways to live. There is the path of repentant faith in Jesus that leads to salvation, and everything else goes to hell. Six, following Jesus will cost us everything. We've got to be willing to lose our reputations and our relationships and even our lives if we follow him. Seven, belonging to Jesus is worth everything that we are and have. Eight, belonging to Jesus means that we are part of a community of people who talk with each other about our lives, who confront each other about our sin, and who forgive each other. Nine, in the community of faith, we must not be characterized by arrogant self-promotion, but by loving service for one another. And ten, we need to be ready because Jesus is coming back at any moment to judge the living and the dead. Friends, we've got to teach these ten things. And more than that, we've got to teach everything Jesus says, not just in this book. But we want to say with Paul in Acts 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. We want to, tell, we want to teach the words that Jesus said directly. We want to teach the words that Jesus spoke through his apostles and the other New Testament writers. And we want to teach the words of the Old Testament as we understand them through the lens of Jesus and his finished work. So we've got to teach the Bible. That's the second part of the Great Commission. Now there's three applications. First, this is how we know the Great Commission applies to all believers and not just the original 11 apostles. Daniel made this point in Sunday school a few weeks ago. If we make disciples by teaching them all that Jesus has commanded, part of what Jesus has commanded is this command to teach others all that Jesus has commanded. And so this command in itself requires the faith be transmitted from generation to generation. So Great Commission is not only for the first generation, it's for all of us who have followed Christ. We are all bound to the Great Commission. Second, are you making disciples in this way? Are you teaching anybody the commands of Jesus? Now, when we talk about teaching, we often think about the local church. But friends, the Great Commission isn't just for church leaders. Each of us has a responsibility to pass Jesus' commands on to new disciples. Are you doing this in any way? At home, do you answer biblical questions as they're put to you by your spouse or your kids? Do you talk about spiritual things with your friends? Are you sharing Christ's truth with anybody? 
Friends, just as much as we need to evangelize the lost, Jesus commands us to teach believers. Third, as a disciple, are you learning the word of Christ? Hopefully you're here. Well, you guys are here today. Hopefully you're paying attention. The church's public teaching is one way we fulfill this duty. But Jesus didn't just preach in synagogues to congregations. He had smaller group relationships with his disciples too, and individual relationships. And friends, we need to have those kinds of relationships too. Now what's this look like? In the past, I've heard people say that everybody needs a Paul and everybody needs a Timothy. Everybody needs somebody more mature who's speaking into their life and somebody less mature who we're speaking into. That's a great theory. There's just one problem. It's not always obvious who is a Paul and who is a Timothy and who is a false teacher. Because age is not an indicator of maturity or reliability. Some of the worst false teachers I've ever met were older people who presented themselves as kindly and godly and mature. Friends, they weren't. Some of the most mature believers I've known were young, zealous people in their 20s. And if you wait to have a discipling relationship until you figure out where you are on the maturity rankings compared to everybody else around you, you're going to paralyze yourself and miss out on the growth God intends you to obtain by actually meeting with fellow believers. So instead of the Paul and Timothy model, let me say this. If you're a man, find a brother in the faith. If you're a woman, find a sister and commit to talking and praying and reading the Bible together. This is essential, like the content of your meeting. It's not discipleship to just go hang out with other believers, okay? There's got to be spiritual content being discussed. And as you hang out with a brother or sister, you may discover that you're more mature and they're less mature, or you may discover you're both on the same level, or that in some areas you're more mature and in other areas they're more mature, whatever the combination is, whatever. I promise, as you spend time together with a fellow believer, and read the Bible, and talk about spiritual questions, and talk about life, and pray together, you will learn and you will grow. So we make disciples by teaching the commands of Christ, and by learning, we ourselves grow as disciples. And this is something we need to be doing. But we come now to the last part of disciple making, which is its goal. We're to make disciples who observe all that Christ has commanded. Our goal is not just that somebody professes faith. Our goal is not just to teach spiritual things. No, the objective is that we are obedient disciples to Jesus who make disciples who themselves are obedient to Jesus. Friends, we don't want to wind up like the Jewish religi religious leaders in this book who were hypocrites, pretending to a righteousness they didn't really have. Because though they had God's word, they didn't obey it. Friends, discipleship is about obeying Jesus. Now, when we say this, sometimes people get jumpy because people worry that talking about obedience somehow erodes the truth that we're saved by God's grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone apart from works. But friends, it doesn't. Of course we aren't saved by our works. Of course our obedience doesn't earn God's salvation. And yet Jesus says he wants disciples who obey all his commands. So encouraging obedience is a critical part of disciple making. I've had people say, Ben, why do you talk about obedience so much? You sound like a legalist from the front. You want to know why I talk about obedience? It's because Jesus requires me to. Friend, you need to know obedience is a defining feature of discipleship. That might sound foreign to you. Because there is an idea today in the American church that what Jesus is really after is a decision. 
that at some point in your life, you were convinced to pray the sinner's prayer once, and that's all he cares about. And after that, everything else is optional. That's a common idea today, friends. I tell you, it's false. It's totally foreign to the Bible. Belonging to Jesus is not simply a mental exercise which is confined to one moment in our lives through one prayer. Yes, God declares us righteous in the moment we respond to the gospel with repentant faith. But for those who truly believe that isn't the end, that's the beginning. Because faith isn't a one-time decision. Actual faith in Jesus is something we live out in our real lives day after day as we listen to Jesus' words and strive to obey them. And that's why the encouragement to obey is a huge part of disciple-making. So believing, friend, is there anybody you are encouraging to be more obedient? Jesus, with all his authority, requires us to do this, to encourage fellow believers to obey. And if you say, I'm Jesus' disciple, let me ask you, are you being obedient? Or as I talk right now, are there areas in your mind where you say, you know, I got this area in my life, I'm not obedient. And if you're aware of something like that, I got to ask, do you care about it? Do you see that area as a problem? If not, frankly, I can't see any biblical reason why you should imagine that you belong to Jesus. Because faith isn't just something that is confined to the space between our ears. It's something lived out in our lives. And of course, we won't obey perfectly in this life. Obedience is a battle. But there should be a struggle for righteousness. Friend, where you know you have failings, repent. Like we said earlier, Jesus is gracious and forgiving. And then take action to bring your life into conformity with God's word. James 1 says, be, be uh, doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving yourselves. Obedience is the goal of disciple-making. And so with that, we've seen the Great Commission, which Jesus, with all his authority, requires believers to obey. Believing, friend, we are to be his disciples. That means we, we repent, we believe, we are baptized, we learn, and we obey. And we must also be disciple makers, which means we evangelize, we teach, and we encourage others to obey. And this brings us to our last point, which is quite brief, the comfort of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus now speaks the final words of the book. Look at verse 20. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew's gospel doesn't end with Jesus ascending into heaven. It, instead, it ends with this great encouragement and promise, which is made possible because of Jesus' ascension. In his deity, God the Son is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But in his humanity on the earth, Jesus was confined to one place at one time. But now an era is beginning in which Jesus is not going to physically be on the earth anymore. And while that might seem to us to be bad news, actually, it's a tremendous advantage for us. Because from heaven, Jesus can make good on this promise. There, unbounded by space and time, he can always be with every one of his people. You know, on earth, when Peter wanted to talk to Jesus, he, was, he only got a few minutes of Jesus' time. But believer, today, we don't have to worry about standing in line for Jesus' attention. You know, each of us always has access to his help, not just occasionally, but literally in the Greek, this says all the days, all the days of our lives, and all the moments in those days, we have an ever-present companion and help. King Jesus is always with us. And in this, Matthew shows us one last time that something the Old Testament said about God is true of Jesus. Because often the Old Testament says things like this in Joshua 1, I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And what's true of God in the Old Testament is true of Jesus in the New Testament. 
because Jesus is God. And he who has all authority over all things has sworn to be with us always until the end of the age, until history as we know it ends, until he returns to earth to establish his kingdom in fullness and when he will set all things right. And so in good times and hard times, friends, we need to know that Jesus is near and he's at work in our lives. But in context here, we especially are to see that Jesus is a present help as we go about obeying his great commission. As we teach our families about the gospel, Jesus is empowering and helping us. As we evangelize the lost, Jesus is empowering and helping us. As we spend time in the word with other believers, Jesus is empowering and helping us. As we strive for righteousness and obedience, Jesus is empowering and helping us. As we gather together as a church, Jesus is empowering and helping us. Because, friends, as Jesus said in chapter 16 of this book, I will build my church. And that's a comforting thought. Friends, in the end, the will of Jesus shall be done. For us corporately, for us individually. He will never fail us. He will never desert us. He will never cast his people off. He will be with us to the end. All his elect will be saved. All his good work will be completed. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And friends, we can know that for certain because Jesus has won the victory in principle by dying for our sins and rising from the dead. So to conclude, if you have never believed in Jesus today, I want you to know there is a glorious invitation available. It is a free gift from God to be free from the penalty and power of sin, to find rest for your soul. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I call on you, friend. Repent and believe in Jesus, and you will be saved. But today, if you do know Jesus, then live for him. He's worth it. Be willing to lose all for him and obey his great commission. For by so doing, he promises there are untold great eternal rewards ahead. As he says in Matthew 6, 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you.